Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Boards Insiders, it's Patrick here, usual host of this podcast and the founder of Inside the Boards. Today, I'm pleased to depart a bit from our usual programming to present to you the 2021 John Collins Harvey Lecture at Georgetown's Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics. Before we launch into the lecture itself with Dr. Fauci, let me just say a few words about the namesake of the Center for Bioethics, Dr. Ed Pellegrino. If you've listened to our show before, you probably heard me reference Dr. Edmund Pellegrino. Dr. Pellegrino is probably the one who most influenced my decision to become a doctor. He was a professor of medicine and medical ethics. He had dual appointments in philosophy, uh, in the philosophy department and department of medicine at Georgetown. He's rightfully been called the father of bioethics, founder of the uh, Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, and he was the chair of the President's Council on Bioethics at a time in um, 2007 when I was a second-year medical student uh, serving as the Pellegrino Fellow uh, at Georgetown. To give you an idea of who Dr. Pellegrino was, um, I'll let him say a few words it's a pleasure for someone like myself, who has been in medicine for more than 60 years, to see another group of young people willing to undertake the responsibilities that go with being a physician. It's a combination of privilege and responsibility. I think you made a wise choice, particularly today when so many young people have so many other avenues available to them. But having decided to embark on that career, I'd like to take a few moments to say something about the heart and soul of what it is to be a physician. So uh, that comes from a white coat ceremony talk that he gave back in, I believe it was 2005 at uh, Georgetown. So if you are interested in learning more about Dr. Pellegrino's work and the philosophy of medicine, head over to our website, insidetheboards.com, where you'll find some links for this episode, which will also be in the show notes, to a life and work of Dr. Edmund Pellegrino YouTube playlist featuring some of the talks and um, interviews he gave a link to the Kennedy Institute of Ethics digital collection uh, catalog of the 650-plus written works that uh, Dr. Pellegrino composed throughout his life, a link to the Philosophy of Medicine Reborn, a collection of essential Pellegrino in one handy volume, and 
It is with much thanks to Father Miles Sheehan and Marty Patchell at the Center for Clinical Bioethics for giving us the permission to publish this. Here is the 2021 John Collins Harvey Lecture, a conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Today, we're having the 18th annual John Collins Harvey Lecture, sponsored by the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown University. My name is Miles Sheehan. I am the recently appointed director of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics. By training, I'm a physician who specialized in internal medicine and geriatrics, and I'm also a Jesuit priest. Before I introduce our distinguished guest for this Harvey Lecture, which because of the pandemic, we're presenting as a conversation, please allow me to share with you a bit about Dr. John Harvey. Dr. Harvey was a distinguished clinician, researcher, and medical educator. A graduate of Yale and the Johns Hopkins Medical School, Dr. Harvey was a faculty member at Hopkins before moving to Georgetown University in 1973. Dr. Harvey was a leader in establishing the specialty of geriatric medicine, and he was also a man of deep Catholic faith and acquired in 1989 a doctorate in moral theology from St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore. A close friend of Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, Dr. Harvey worked as faculty member with Georgetown Center for Clinical Bioethics until his death in 2017. Having had the privilege of meeting Dr. Harvey, I can testify to his warmth, his humor, and his erudition. I'd also like to welcome members of the Harvey and Pellegrino families who are in our audience today. I can well imagine that Dr. Harvey and Dr. Fauci, I guess today, would have enjoyed a close relationship if their paths had crossed, but I don't think that was the case. Dr. Anthony S. Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and is obviously well known for his leadership nationally and globally on issues of infectious disease as well as immune disorders. An advisor to seven presidents of the United States, Dr. Fauci also had a major role in developing during the George W. Bush administration, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR a program that has saved millions of lives globally. Dr. Fauci hails from Brooklyn, New York, where Dr. Pellegrino came from as well. He was educated at Regis High School in New York City and the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, which incidentally are run by Jesuits, and then went to Cornell University Medical Center, Medical School, graduated in 66, did a residency in internal medicine at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center, before moving to the NIH for postdoctoral training. Dr. Fauci has been an extraordinary successful researcher and scientist, one of the most impactful published authors in medicine, and the recipient of numerous honorary degrees and awards, including in 2008, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Dr. Fauci, in a couple minutes, I'm gonna ask you a COVID question, but I'd like to start with something else, perhaps for a change for you. Um, a little bit of personal history, I've never met you before, but when I was a uh, first year resident, I actually learned from you and spent a lot of time wondering who the heck this Anthony Fauci guy was when I was a resident in internal medicine and I had a patient with mixed cryoglobulinemia and vasculitis. We never quite figured out why, and then that was probably because hepatitis C wasn't discovered until 1989. 
So I read a lot of work at that time. How did your early years after your residency develop your career in immunology and infectious disease? Well, I took a dual fellowship at the NIH, uh, both uh, getting me board certified in infectious diseases and clinical immunology and allergy. Um, that was the way the fellowship was organized back then. So I had a dual interest in the body's immune system, and I got involved in autoimmune inflammatory diseases and the role of immunomodulatory agents, glucocorticoid cytotoxic agents in the entire spectrum of vasculitides. And I did that from the time I finished my chief residency in 1972 to the time of 1981. And I did that and it was a lot of fun. I was very successful. Uh, as you know, we developed many of the therapies that were currently used to put a vasculitic syndromes into remission. But then in 1981, I was struck by the first report of a small cluster of cases of gay men who had a very unusual, previously undescribed disease. And I made a decision in my professional life to change what I was doing out of the realm of pure inflammatory disease and take the step back into my world of infectious diseases. And I studied these young men for years until we finally found out three years later that this was a viral induced disease, which we ultimately called AIDS. And then Ever since then, that's one way or other what I have been continuing to do despite all the other opportunities that have come my way in other areas of infectious disease. You know, Dr. Harvey was known as a mentor and a source of good advice to students and physicians in training. Who have been your heroes and mentors? Well, probably the single person that influenced my career was the person who recruited me down to the NIH. Uh, a person, unfortunately, prematurely uh, passed um, from cancer, but his name was Dr. Sheldon Wolf. And Sheldon Wolf was the clinical director and the chief of the Laboratory of Clinical Investigation. And I took my fellowship in immunology slash infectious disease under him. Um, he was a very uh, Phenomen he was a phenomenal mentor, a generous person who put me on the projects of vasculitis as a very young physician, just literally finishing his residency, and was extremely generous to give me this project, which turned out to be extraordinarily successful. Um, and he remained a close and dear friend. He was the best man at my wedding, which took place in Dahlgren Chapel. Oh, <laughs> yeah. How about that? <laughs> indeed. Indeed. You know, you work a lot with trainees and physicians who are new fellows. They're early in their career. Um, you know, so much that happens seems to be serendipitous uh, with pathways in academic medicine. But what's your advice to them? You know, it's I, I you took the words out of my mouth, uh, uh, Dr. Sheen. Uh, I tell them exactly what you said. Most of the things that have happened in my career that have really been impactful were things that I could not nearly begin to have predicted. 
But my original goal was to come to the NIH for three years, then go back to New York City and practice medicine mm -hmm. in the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. I wanted to teach and do some clinical research and practice medicine. It was only the three years of experience at the NIH that um, got me to really appreciate the importance of research. So I went back, took my chief residency for a year, and my generous mentor, who I referred to, Shelley Wolf, wanted me to come back as a full-time tenured scientist, but I was drawn to going back to clinical medicine, and I got an offer to be chief resident at Cornell, which at the time would have meant going right into the clinical practice program there. That was sort of like the stepping stone to going into a big practice. Yeah. Um, and I said, I was really not sure what I wanted to do. And in his generosity, he said, I tell you what, why don't you go back to New York, do the chief residency, and somewhere towards the middle or two-thirds of the way through, if you want to come back, let me know your position is still here for you. And if you want to stay in New York, God bless you. You'll always be a good friend of mine. And as I turned out, even though I had a phenomenal experience as chief resident, I decided I wanted to come back to the NIH in 1972. And I did. And, I, and I've been there ever since. Yeah. You know, I know that uh, you are the husband of Dr. Christine Grady, who is head of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institute of Health's Clinical Center. You know, what do you think are the main challenges for bioethics in the future? And given your experience in mentoring advice, do you have any advice for me as a newly appointed director of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, uh, I, you know, I have become extremely appreciative of the importance and the depth and the breadth of the field of bioethics. I mean, obviously, because I'm married to uh, one of the top bioethicists in the country. And it, it's an extraordinary uh, a field. It really is. I mean, the, 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 the things that I see uh, Christine have to deal with, uh, just alone the things that interface with what I do, um, you know, particularly in the arena of clinical trials. I, she, she took, as you well know, she got her doctorate and PhD under Dr. Pellegrino at, uh, at Georgetown. She got her PhD in philosophy at Georgetown. Um, and she did it. Uh, her thesis was the ethics of clinical trials in vaccines. And that was her, um, her thesis. And ever since then, she's been deeply involved in so many of the ethically sticky issues that go on in clinical trials, you know, everything from financial remuneration of people in clinical trials, the impact of that, um, um, uh, informed consent, um, challenge studies, mm -hmm. um, a whole variety of things that, you know, you think you know a lot about until you're hit with a very important question that requires people who have skills and experience in ethics that can really help you out. And in fact, one of the most enjoyable things that she does, in addition to her research productivity, which is quite productive, is that they have a very uh, extensive uh, uh, consultation service at the NIH Clinical Center. And you would imagine that once 
clinicians know that you have a really good bioethics department that you're busy almost full-time doing consultations. Um, and she has a very, very um, uh, large and strong uh, fellowship training program for people. And I have found really quite interesting the, the diversity of people who want to take a two to three year fellowship in ethics. I mean, she has everything in her department from straightforward physicians, nurses, lawyers, um, people who come from entirely different fields who really want to get a core training in ethics, who then go off to other universities or places uh, of academic pursuit and do something that has an ethical component to it, but isn't really just primary ethics alone. So bottom line is the, uh, the people who have interest in the field of ethics, it's a lot more substantive than you would think <laughs> than just, oh, it's ethics. I, I can figure that out. <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> you know, uh, I know that if I don't ask you a question about COVID, I'll have about 1,200 people really angry at me. So um, I know that people are anxious to get the latest perspective on where we are currently and how we're doing with vaccination as well as the threat posed by the British and the South American and Brazilian variants. And I, I guess there was an article that just came out in Lancet from the Israeli study showing that maybe one dose of the Pfizer vaccine is enough. I wonder if you could update us a little bit. Yeah, let me give you a quick buzz through where we are and then I'll address the, um, the one dose versus two doses um, because it is connected to the issue of variants, which will become obvious in just a moment. So, I mean, obviously, anybody who's been following this realizes that we are going through and have gone through uh, the most important and destructive pandemic of a respiratory virus in 102 years since 1918. Uh, it, its global impact is stunning. There have been now over 107 million cases and 2.7 million deaths globally in the United States. We have about 24 million cases, 25, and we have now 485,000 deaths. Um, at the peak of the third wave, which we're just coming to the end of, we were having anywhere from three to 400,000 cases a day and over 3,000 to 4,000 deaths per day. We came perilously close to having our hospitals overrun in this last surge. The first surge, as you remember, was in the late winter, early spring of 2020, dominated by the New York City metropolitan area. The big problem there is that when we hit the peak and came down, we never got down to a good baseline. We always had about 20,000 cases. Then we try to open the economy. You might recall in the early summer, we said, let's open up America again. We put out some guidelines to do that carefully. Unfortunately, there was a great disparity among the states and how closely they followed that. And instead of opening up America again, we created a second major surge. When we got that under control, we went down to a baseline of about 70,000 cases a day. 
which was clearly going in the wrong direction. And then finally, as predicted, when we got into the colder weather, followed by the holiday seasons of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, we had this horrendous third surge, which were just now hitting the peak and coming down. Within the context of that third surge, we recognized a number of variants globally, some of which have functional consequences. For the non-virologists who are listening, RNA viruses mutate all the time. Most of the mutations do not have a functional impact on the virus itself. Doesn't make it any better, doesn't make it any worse. But every once in a while, you'll get a constellation of mutations which leads to what we call a variant or a new lineage. One in the UK called B117 has been shown to be considerably more likely to transmit from person to person. And in fact, it is a bit more pathogenic or virulent. That particular um, lineage, this B117, is now in the United States in over 40 states and over 1,000 people. The modelers who do the kinetics and the dynamics of viral replication predict that by the end of March, it will be the dominant uh, um, strain in the United States. Simultaneous with that is the evolution of a strain in South Africa called the B1351. This one is a bit different in the following reason. When you look at the impact of this, although we don't know whether it spreads more rapidly, the one thing it does have is that the successful vaccines, which we've developed, and I've skipped over that quickly, but we have now, luckily for us, uh, we've funded the development of and clinical um, uh, testing of three platforms, six vaccines, six companies. Two of them are already reached in the EUA. The ones we're all getting now, the vaccine that I received, a prime boost of an mRNA, which gives 94 to 95% efficacy. Now, if you look at the impact of these variants, these mutations, the 117, which will become dominant in this country, luckily for us, is extremely well handled by the antibodies that are induced by the vaccines that are the mRNA vaccines. In contrast, the variant that's in South Africa, the B1351, has been about five to six-fold diminution in the ability of the antibodies induced by the vaccine to control it. But the vaccine induces such a high titer of antibody that even with the five to six-fold diminution, it still gives you about 50 to 55% efficacy against the virus in general, which is this new strain. But the good news is it prevents hospitalization and deaths very well. So we're kind of unfortunate that we have variants, but we're lucky that the vaccines we have seem to do very well. So that takes care of where we are. This Great. new concept that came out yesterday evening about the Israelis did a study in which they showed that a single dose 
instead of a prime boost of the Pfizer vaccine gives about an 85% efficacy against symptomatic disease and a 72% efficacy against symptomatic and asymptomatic disease. The suggestion being, since we have a shortage of vaccines, namely the demand is greater than the supply, why don't we just give one vaccine instead of others? In other words, a prime boost. There's a real problem with that that I actually explained on a press conference from the White House literally three or four hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) And the problem is that although it does induce a reasonable response, we do not know how durable that response is, number one. Number two, we know from the studies that we did that when you give a prime, you get a certain level of antibody. When you give a boost, you increase that tenfold. Mm -hmm. So the tenfold increase allowed the cushion that allowed it to be effective against the variance. Now, if you remove that cushion and you say, you got a pretty good level, but it isn't up here, we don't know whether you're going to lose the protection against the variant. Number two, when you have a suboptimal protection, even though it's reasonable, if it's suboptimal, the problem is you might inadvertently select for variance. Because when you put inadequate immune pressure on a virus, it will find a way to escape that immune pressure. So even though I'm not criticizing the study, because it's a good study and we're going to have to pursue that maybe there is something there. Right now, it isn't sufficient enough for us to say, just get one shot. No, if you get the mRNA, come back for your second shot, if you got the Moderna, come back 28 days later. If you have the Pfizer, come back 21 days later. Great. Thank you very much. You know, um, for the students here at Georgetown Medical School or any medical school, what would you be your, your advice? You know, you talked about how many things seem serendipitous. It's you get interest in somebody, you find a mentor, you cut some breaks. But what would be your advice to them on how they should approach their medical education and future careers? Um, I think with an open mind um, to appreciate that you will never, ever know as much as you want to know. Uh, And and you've got to be able to to deal with that Um, because the amount of knowledge in today's field of medicine is almost unlimited. Um, Looks like we got a little bit of a pause here. Oh, I think we have Dr. Fauci back now. Okay, I'm sorry. Something happened. We got a little disconnected. Are we back? Uh, Yeah, glad to have you back. Oh, you got a little nervous there. <laughs> that was a long 45 seconds for me. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, no, actually, what I was really saying at the time I got cut off is that one of the real beauties of the field of medicine, it's so totally potential. I mean, it really is one of those fields where you can do almost anything and everything you want to do, including becoming a Jesuit priest at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, you could teach, you could see patients, 
You could do administration. You could do global health. You know, you could do media if you want. There are so many things that you can do. It really is an extraordinary uh, profession. So if you have any inkling of going into medicine, just, you know, enjoy it because it's, it, it's, it's got such breadth and depth for you. Yeah. yeah, Dr. Fauci, I'd like to introduce now one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Claudia Sotomayor. Uh, Dr. Sotomayor is the chief of our bioethics consultation service here at Georgetown University MedStar Hospital, an assistant professor of medicine and a member of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics. And she has a question for you. Okay. Hi, thank you so much for, for being here with us. It's a great honor um, to hear you speak and having you here. Um, my question basically is focused on the issue of moral distress. In the last year, physicians, nurses, healthcare professionals in general increasingly reported moral distress. Um, Dr. Ulrich and Dr. Grady um, describe moral distress as the phenomenon in which a healthcare professional as a moral agent cannot or does not act on his or her moral judgments because of institutional or internal constraints. My question to you is, have you in your professional career been morally distressed? And if so, how did you handle it? And what advice would you give to our uh, colleagues right now who are suffering moral distress? You know, I, I have to say, I, I'd like to give you an answer that we could build on, but I have not, in my experience, experienced moral distress in the sense of wanting and feeling I needed to do something, but because of institutional or other constraints, have not been able to do that. But I thoroughly understand you know, what you're talking about, uh, particularly since my wife wrote about it. <laughs> so uh, uh, it is an important phenomenon. Uh, but fortunately, I've not had uh, that kind of constraint that would cause me that kind of distress. So I, I, I wish I could say, yes, I did. And this is what I did about it. But, but I didn't. So I find myself in a situation where I don't have that, which I, I, I think is fortunate for me. Right. Thank you. And now uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sarah Vitone. Uh, Dr. Vitone is assistant professor in the nursing department at Georgetown School of Nursing and Health Science, as well as a valued member of the Pellegrino Center. Dr. Vitone. Thank you. Um, so nice to meet you, Dr. Fauci. Thanks for being with us today. Um, so I'm thinking more about both now and about moving forward. Are there lessons from your career in this or other health crises to help guide us as ethicists and nurses and doctors working together to move us forward? Um, well, you know, when people ask me for advice about moving forward, I, I always feel like I'm talking to people who probably have more insight and experience than I do but th about that. But the one thing that, that you know, in answer to the question that I just uh, uh, did with Dr. Sheehan is that uh, ethicists um, should appreciate you know, how important uh, their calling is, their field, because they often feel, I know that, 
that it's a field that, you know, is kind of vague, a little bit disrespected, maybe that people think, oh, well, what's ethicist? I, I can handle this myself. Um, and, and a lot of people feel that way. It says, oh, I don't really need an ethics consult. I could figure this one out. You know, ethics comes naturally. Yeah, well, ethics is a really complicated field, as I have learned and has made me very humble about it. So the lessons that I learned from this outbreak is that there are a lot of ethical considerations that come in in everything from the inequities and inequities of um, not only the healthcare system, um, the availability and accessibility of interventions, be they vaccines or therapies, the relationship between your responsibility to your country and the uh, moral obligation that you might have to take care of those who are less fortunate. Um, For example, making sure that there are resources that those who are less fortunate as we are, and we're facing that right now, as when you get vaccine available and you look at the availability of vaccine throughout the world versus the rich countries, those are all ethical considerations and lessons learned. The whole issue that I know my wife had gotten into, or at least one of her fellows is, is the idea about challenge studies. When do you do challenge studies? When are they ethically sound? What are the considerations? So, you know, going through this COVID-19 experience merely just reminds me of the importance of ethical considerations and why when I talk to, you know, mostly your people that are your students or your fellows or what have you, and I give them the answer that you're getting into a very interesting, exciting, and generally underappreciated field. Thank you so much. You know, Dr. Fauci, we've been asking you very serious questions, and so I'm going to ask you a, a minor one. Uh, with great respect, uh, you're an enormous intellect, a person, a great heart, but you are not the tallest man in the world. Um, how did you become the captain of your basketball team at Regis High School? I was really good. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, I I can say it somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's the truth. And, and I do tell the story because it is true. So my father was... Uh, you know, also of sh- short of stature, which is, you know, it, it just goes to show genetics really work. Um, my father had um, a, a very, very important talent. He was the New York City champion in the 220 and the 440 yard dash in the Utrecht High School in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn. He was one of the fastest people they have ever seen. He went into the Olympic trials. He was really, really good. So on the one hand, the good news is I inherited my father's speed, but the bad news is I inherited my father's height. (laughs) So the reason I was a pretty good basketball player and the captain of my basketball team in New York City was that besides having good court presence, because I was a point guard, I was really faster than just about anybody else on the court. 
And the game that we played was mostly a fast break game. We were very much a transition basketball team instead of just setting up. Mm -hmm. So if you could just get me the ball anywhere near half court, I could definitely drive by you and score. So that's how I became the captain of my basketball team. Well, I heard from some older Jesuits who uh, were probably in high school and they were at St. Peter's Prep. And they said, you know, that Fauci guy just used to run rings around us. So, <laughs> so that's well, the- you know, the reason why I remember the St. Peter's prep game, they won. They were very good. And St. Peter's prep uh, had as their star a guy named George Blaney, who went on to Holy Cross to play and then to become the coach of Holy Cross for years and years. And it was playing against people like that who even though you thought you were really good when you played against someone who is as fast as you are as a good shooter as you are but that's a five or six inches taller than you are (laughs) that's when i decided i would go into medicine (laughs) um you know i know that when you were at holy cross you um did the pre-med, but with the classics focus on it. Um, And I heard you give an interview with John Hart at Loyola University a few weeks ago, where you mentioned that the classics gave you an insight into human nature that you found helpful dealing with crises, not to mention personalities. I know you've had to deal with some personalities recently. So uh, with any of the authors you found particularly valuable or particular work that influenced you? You know, I wouldn't say it influenced me, but it just gave me such um, an academic insight, uh, particularly with Greek. You know, we, as I'm sure you do in your classics, we really literally had to um, had to translate the Iliad and the Odyssey, which I mean, if you look at all the characters in Homer's work, uh, you really get a feel that even centuries and centuries and centuries ago, the commonalities of human nature and the things that pain people and the thing that excite people and the things that anger people, you know, were going on way, 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 way a long time ago. And I just found that studying human nature through the classics, I would say with all due respect to the hardcore science, you know, of biology and chemistry and all the things you really need to know that my skill as a physician is dependent as much on the humanitarian education that I got with the classics than understanding the biology of a particular organ system. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. And just a final question. I know we got a hard stop coming up. Um, You have to move in between the media spotlight be generous enough to deal with stuff like this, work at the highest levels of the US government, direct the NIAID, supervise research. I think you're still seeing patients as well as being a husband and a father. How do you juggle it all? Do you get any time for you? Well, in non-emergency situations, um, um, I have, you know, I still am a workaholic. I'm an unapologetic workaholic, but I'm fortunate enough that I have a great family. When my children were at home, I have, you know, as you can imagine from what I've been saying about, I have a a spectacular wife. 
who understands me very well and is incredible in her own right, you know, extremely talented. So I just do things fundamentally at the family level. When my children were schooled, they all, you know, went to the National Cathedral School in, in D.C. And we used to get involved in all of their sporting events, be it crew and cross country and, and diving and things like that. Um, but I mostly have fun as a family person. I mean, I like I love nature. I love to run. My wife and I have run marathons and 10Ks together, and we still essentially exercise every day together. That seems simple and maybe not exciting, but it's really enjoyable. Uh, right now, for the last year, my life has changed completely yeah, because right. this has been such an extraordinary demand on time that it looks like a or feels like a year plus a month or so is drinking out of a fire hydrant. It really does. I mean, you, you, you've heard that, that metaphor many times, but it's true. It does feel that way, whether it's Saturday or Sunday or Monday or Thursday, that Chris and I don't know the difference. We just work. I mean, we do carve out time to be together and do things like going for walks and stuff like that. But we have to put really everything else on hold. Uh, because of the seriousness of the situation we're in. And just to finish off, um, you know, when you said that, it, when Lent started a couple of days ago, I, I remember going, did it ever end since it started <laughs> last year? Uh, but, um, you know, I keep on hedging my bets as to when I'm going to be able to walk around without a mask. And I'm, I got high hopes for Pentecost this year. Um, but, uh these things, I, I mean, part of me feels this is going to be part of a new future that, you know, there have been the three different coronaviruses that have shown up in the last 20 years that have been pathogenic and that this seems to be a source that's regrettably broad and deep and resourceful in its mutations. Right. Am I being too pessimistic? Um, you're being realistic, but, but not necessarily. Uh, you don't need to be that pessimistic because I, I believe that we have the capability scientifically to develop what we call the universal coronavirus vaccine. In other words, one that really covers at least all of the SARS-CoV-2 mutations, but also the entire spectrum of the family of coronaviruses. You know, it is likely that the four coronaviruses that we've been dealing with for decades, which caused the common cold, 15 to 30% of all the common colds that you and I experience every winter repetitively are coronaviruses, usually four of them. It is likely when you talk to the evolutionary virologists that hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they hit the human civilization as a big pandemic. Mm. And then just everything went back down and they reasserted themselves as common cold type things. So, I think that you're absolutely right. These viruses have the capability. We got hit with three in 18 years that have been either pandemic or pandemic potential. So shame on us if we don't develop a universal coronavirus vaccine. Um, I just want to express my appreciation for your taking the time to be with us and for helping us out at the Pellegrino Center. It's been great to see you this way. Uh, I would love some time to have the pleasure to meet you in person. But <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. <laughs> good, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. All right, so that's all we got for now. 
Inside the Boards has a lot going on. Um, right now, we over on our Study Smarter channel are doing our annual Step 1 focused um, Study Smarter Fest. Uh, you learn more about that inside the boards.com slash study smarter. Up next on this channel, our main podcast, you will um, expect to hear an Addiction Medicine 101 series for medical students. But then after that, I've decided a couple things. Number one, my background's in philosophy, and I would like to do a philosophy of medicine and bioethics series, getting involved uh, some faculty around the country who notably were students of Dr. Pellegrino to introduce you to some of his thoughts and to present ethics to you in the way that uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Pellegrino would have been proud of. As well, I'm going to be working, I've decided, on a uh, kind of how to approach ethics for the board's audio product, audio series um, in conjunction with this. So uh, you download our app and stay tuned for you know information about that. But NBME is attaching more weight to ethics topics on step one, step two, step three, as well they should. And, and so I want to create something that really helps address that, that helps you be able to apply it not only to the test, but of course, more importantly, to the practice of our profession.